Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hey folks, Sunsung, Mark. Say hi, Chris. Chris. Yeah, it's Mark and Chris. We've got a new guy here, though. Well, he's not new. We're not gaining him the job. <laughs> he might be. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. He's got, he's got the couch. That's that's enough for now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you try not to laugh in the microphone. You're going to have to give up on that. I'm just trying to make your life easier when you're editing, so it's not just me going, huh. <laughs> um, who are you? I'm Grant. <laughs> this is Grant. Grant Donaldson uh, of, of the band Moni Jitchell. Uh, but also formerly of Do you want to throw some names a bit? Uh, several Elegies Bianca Played in Farewell Singapore I was a brief member in Out Blinker as well But uh, I was too cool So I got kicked out <laughs> <laughs> That must have been you being really cool Pouring that innocent gun over your head And the bouncer's trying to throw you out a tent You have to be more specific on which time <laughs> that was <laughs> um, Were you in Friends in America? I was I am I am technically Are yeah. you the guy uh, aka Ideal? Also do that as well yeah, yeah you do quite a lot I do I think yeah. that's the point So Grant uh, is currently Very hot In the Scottish music scene Very hot Hot property For the right and wrong reasons <laughs> <laughs> Can be found on Instagram <laughs> I don't think Instagram doesn't do downvotes Does it? Not yet <laughs> Grant's out to change that I'll be deleting my account When that happens <laughs> Yeah Grant uh, We've Brought you in, you've, you've chosen a record, we spoke about this a while ago And actually, you're you're a person that listens to the show anyway God, why? God love you Long time listener, first time caller <laughs> um, Last time listener Last time listener <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, so we should probably actually give some props here uh, We owe the short Paris episode to Grant Because Grant uh, made me aware of the band uh, in the first place And that is genuinely to, to date one of my favourite episodes and I really really like that that group as well so that's Grant's footprint and we thought it's only fair this guy's got quite a lot of suggestions and a fair amount of notoriety so we should bring him in and try and get ratings <laughs> we, we, we need to find a word for hate ratings like in a, a suitable uh, abbreviation <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like doom scrolling but for ratings <laughs> uh, I felt quite chuffed that I actually knew a band that you didn't for a short part of this one but uh 
also telling you about it meant I didn't have to do the deep dive, but the, that was one of the best episodes I've heard. You yeah, that was that a was really, really good. deep dive. But it, it was uh, obviously, you know, I have uh, a bit of a thing for Russia, contemporary Russia, Soviet Union, all that kind of stuff. So it was just, it was catnip. Um, yeah, so we all grant that. Uh, and Grant has also suggested something this week, which I also did not know. Uh, but before we get uh, too into depth on that, Mark, mm-hmm. we are bound to have some sort of admin. Yeah, we do. Let's start with the big thing. The big thing? The big is thing. it the big bundle thing? The big bundle thing. So, so we've had yeah. an idea. Um, it's Christmas is approaching, uh, so you'll have to fast. act on this fast if, if you want it to happen. You have but, a whole week, basically. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Unless you're living outside the UK, in which case you're fucked. <laughs> and we can, we can send you a drawing of it if you want to put that under the Christmas tree and it'll arrive when it gets there. But basically, we're going to be doing uh, an unsung vinyl hamper. Um, and what that means is for 30 bucks, uh, we will send you three albums from a record club in one go uh, again all these albums have been sourced from the bands and the labels direct uh, you can give us a little bit of guidance on the kind of thing you want or you can just go potluck and we'll send you what we think are three of the best but uh, yeah if you go for the, the unsung vinyl hamper Mark will provide details on the socials uh, about how you can get your hands on it and yeah I mean the the content on the record club is very highly regarded. I think mm-hmm. it's safe to say everybody yeah. seems really, really pleased with the stuff that's getting sent out. We've got a fair bit to choose from. Um, but yeah, so this way you don't have to sign up for the record club to get some of the stuff that we send. Uh, we will send you in one go because it's that time of the year. Yeah, so if you want to get your hands on that, go to our Etsy store, which is unsungpod.net forward slash merch. It's not a merch item, but that's where you'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is there anything else we need to attend to? Yeah, it's almost Christmas. <laughs> Something's on the horizon. You just said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, getting, the time grows closer where we have to sit down and do the horrible task of getting passion and talking shit. <laughs> um, so, <No>. yeah. <laughs> Grant, you ever tried that? Getting passion and talking shit? What are we doing right now? No. <laughs> But we, we want to talk shit around questions that you give us um, because we Beautifully like, phrased Yeah, we like that <laughs> We like that, we like that um, And only the English will only get worse in that episode <laughs> uh, But that's what you pay money for, I guess uh, so Or yeah, don't Or don't, no, or notoriously don't <laughs> um, But yes, uh, if you have any questions you want to send us Then just hit us up on social um, Jordan Butler, I need to give you a shout out Because um, he actually gave us money for a question <laughs> actual <laughs> Cash. He, no, he basically said, go and get drunk. Here's a PayPal donation and I've got a question for you. And that was really nice uh, because we are going to buy uh, some shandies for, for the evening question. Maybe some nachos. Maybe um, some nachos. But, uh, as long as there's no cheese on them. Anybody can... Yeah, that's right. You're one of them now. <laughs> uh, anybody contributing uh, to the kitty, it's really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, we'll try and make it entertaining. Uh, I think the more steaming we are, the more entertaining it'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, historically... One person used to take the lead on that front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't actually know who it's going to be this time, though, do we? So no. I guess that'll, that'll come out in the shuffle. Who was it last year? Uh, was, was it Chris? No. Was it, it Vicky? It was Dave last was it Dave? year. And it was Vicky the year before. I remember you got lost in that. You got you got curry some year. <laughs> you don't remember buying. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. Oh, man. Ah, there was the one where the fourth episode was really just this strange, <laughs> nebulous, like, wispy void. It was like, like revolution number like nine. A waking videos. dream. Was that, is that the year I think I met you? A few like four days after that, and you were still hungover. Yeah, that that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely adamant that I recorded it, and I apparently didn't hit the button. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it, basically that episode was like the bonus track on a very weird Pink Floyd. 
Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, one more thing to attend to, and that is happy birthday, Mark. Oh, thanks. Um, because the other episode came out on your birthday. It's now after your birthday, even though it's not as much after your birthday as when this lands. But I'm yeah. sure the spirit is still there, and people will still feel happy on your behalf. That you, I hope so. That you made it. I made it. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking made it. 38. I, I saw you playing a gig. Uh, I made night, it. The night before your birthday, and apparently... Redacted. How old are you? <laughs> I'm 38. When you Sorry, turn, I'm, I'm redacted. <laughs> when you turn 38, you start pointing the microphone at your forehead. Yeah. Mm, not your mouth. I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did the crowd. sound good. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. We'll give that a shot tonight. Yeah, uh, how's this? <laughs> yeah, that sounded good, yeah. Um, right, let's, let's get into the... The main event. The meat. The meat. I take a wee slip of that tea. The Kate Bush tea. Kate Bush. Kate. Kate. On that mug. Oh, is it? Yeah. Holy shit, so it is. That's our sale. Two wee babies. Nice. Nah, but they're cherubs. Cherubim. There's going to be a wee bit of religion in this episode. You, you, I hope you there know what cherubim are. Yeah. There is only a wee bit of religion, though, which is actually quite nice. Well, there's a lot more towards the end when I start doing my nexus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um, Right, Grant, uh, tell us the name of the band and the name of the album you've chosen for this week. So the record I've picked is uh, called in Humour and Sadness by the band 68. Which was born out of the ashes of the Chariot, and is the project by Josh Goggin, and I think he's had two drummers now. Michael McClelland is it Nico Yam Yamada? Yamada. I actually met Josh three months ago, and I was telling him I was doing this, and I'm not sure how he felt about it. I couldn't gauge it, <laughs> but he did give me a t-shirt for free, so uh, shit, I will send this on to him. So right, I don't. You don't have to be nice about it. He might. He, I, I, to be honest, I think that I don't know how you're going to react to that, Chris. How you're going, how you're going to react to this music? But he did a podcast with Metal Sucks. Have you guys heard that? Fucking, he was in the charity at the time, 2009, maybe. Okay. They go hard on him for his face, like it was fucking horrible. <laughs> Jings. As he's sitting in the room and he's just been, you know, the usual uh, amiable sort of, not not a bad thing, amiable Christian where they've always got, like, they've got an answer or they've thought it out or, you know, they, they, he seems very affable about it, even though they were like saying Christianity is bullshit. Um, so it can't be that bad. <laughs> this podcast cannot be that bad. And he was on that one. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I read uh, an interview, I think it was actually with Norma Jean and it was them talking about proselytising a wee bit when they're on tour with people who are not. Christian, but they don't they don't get too intense about it, but they find it fun to try and convince people to read the Bible. And you're like, well, you know, go for it. I mean, there's a I think they had a song called "Deathbed Atheist." Is that right? I don't know if you know the concept It's this idea that people recant on their deathbed And start hoping there's a god in a heaven and stuff mm. Anyway, so they seemed a bit more hardcore into that Than I don't get any of those kind of vibes really from this band Whatsoever I don't get any real proselytising stuff And I think he's gone on record as saying He's not really out there doing it as an overt Christian yeah. project It just happens to be his own personal faith So I, I think I, he does it for his own personal faith But I don't think he's in a, in a way of like preaching And I know like for the chariot a lot of folk were turned off of them 
because of their religious side of it. Yeah. And I know folk that saw them years ago and like when you go to the merch bit they all queue up and they all shake your hand and say like God bless you and stuff like that. Mm. And some folk are a bit sort of like... I didn't sneeze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> are you humouring me right now? I can't no, I generally... It. I, I took me a wee second to realise what you meant. Um, like I've not really listened to much Norma Jean but I wonder when... The guys were that age, because I think they were like late teens, early 20s when they were doing that. I wonder if the religion for them, maybe they were a bit more pushy with it mm. when they were touring with other bands and stuff. And like what you're saying, if they were like playing games about how they could wind other bands up and tour or whatever. But since I've been a fan of Scoggin, since like, I don't know, 2012, 2011, every the interview, a lot of it is like their own personal faith within the band mm. is what they cared about. And everything else is kind of like, they almost like created a bubble around that. I think a lot of people were turned off because of the Christianity thing, but I don't think that's why they changed it. I think they just realised it's more of an internal thing rather than like with a band that yeah. are going to spread Christianity or religion or whatever. You know, uh, in a weird way, I have a little bit of sympathy for them because as boring I thought it is, we, we are a, a band, especially a fucking shouty, shouty band, are telling you about Jesus and fucking beating you around the head with it. It's, it's, almost, it's equally boring to go into an interview and have the interviewers just batter on about like, oh, you're Christian, you, that's, that's, that's wrong. It's like... Fuck off, man! Just just ignore it. Like unless it's like a unless it's a real elephant in the room that you can't get around. Like mm. this band has some sort of ongoing issue with it or something like that. It's such a boring thing to try and pin them down on, as though you're some sort of hard hitting journalist. I mean, quite frankly, it's fucking absurd. It's a really silly set of beliefs, in my opinion. I'm not exactly going to stand and focus on it. Who was it that did it? It was on Metal Sucks. I think I think one of the hosts is called Godless. So, you know, you kinda your gun's already loaded when you walk in the fucking room. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't know. I just find that kinda of boring. Anyway, let's put that to one side. Because yes, the, so there's a lot of Christianity in and about this band, but I think in this car- incarnation of Scoggins project, it's not really a, a a huge deal. You wouldn't know it unless you, uh, you knew it. True. I also think there's a bit of a thing where like the chariot was heavily religious in terms of like the lyrical content We'll get to it as well, but like one of the members left because they weren't religious enough towards the end. The band wasn't religious enough for the Appar- Apparently the, the band or the band's message, but not that they were pushing Christianity, but like the bassist quit. And as far as I understand, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons was that the band wasn't religious enough. Well, yeah, it was an interview with two people who were in, who were sacked from the chariot and they were let go because apparently Josh had said that God told them to let them go. <laughs> I've, I've, I've not heard that That's what they claimed in an interview I read it, I read it earlier on I can't Fuck remember Fuck me That's a it, brilliant excuse I think it was on the I PR- should have used that years r- ago Ripping at the middle pages Of my notes <laughs> I think it was on the PRP I think that's where the interview was um, I think it was maybe from, I think maybe they were in the band And kicked out in 2006 And the interview was maybe 10 years later or something I can't remember Fuck what is this A stroke of genius um, yeah, yeah the I mean, buck. interestingly enough, I think the bassist who also quit because they weren't religious enough also went to go and do counselling because God told him to do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, scuba and it's like, we'll, get to, we'll get to that section, but like, there's an interesting arc where, like, at the end of their career, I think they were, or some of the lyrical stuff is like almost not questioning faith, but it's like it's not super uh, with it. And then I think some of the 68 stuff, certainly this record that we're going to talk like that we've picked for tonight, is questioning religion. Mm-hmm. And questioning his self belief in it and stuff, and like yeah. self doubt and things like that. Um, so, which is also why I find it so interesting because it's 
it's quite a turning point in his career, both like the band ending and starting this, mm-hmm. and also the lyrical stuff changing. Well, let's let's map that out a wee bit for people because we are throwing some names in here, and it might not be entirely clear um, the order of things. So, this band uh, is it this sixty eight or just sixty eight? Online, they're called like they are sixty eight. But it is apostrophe 68 is like... Right, okay. So this band, 68, began in 2013 uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, I think, is given as their sort of like founding place. Yeah, that's where he's from, yeah. Um, And uh, for the record, the the name 68 comes from his dad's car. He had the 68 Camaro, I believe. Um, So as we said, it's Josh Scoggin. He's the consistent member. Uh, It was originally Michael McClellan on drums, but pretty soon after, Nico Yamada came in. Was it during a tour? I, was, I think it was during the recording of the second album, was it not? No, because the album came out and then mm. they did tour. At, I think it was midway uh, in a tour. I wonder, but I don't know. If, I didn't see anything about any arguments or anything like that. It's a bit strange. Mm, they, I'm not sure if there's bad blood there or not, because they, 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 there was no news about it. I think yeah, it was just exactly. like there's a new guy. But yeah. um, It's an odd time to do it, put it that way. You would think that, that something happened there that was Yeah, I used to follow Michael. Um, just around the street. <laughs> Aye, aye, he's living <laughs> yeah, in the Woodlands area. Obviously. I don't know how big a fan you are. Uh, I think, you know, he's from Atlanta as well, and I think he's quite, I think he's very religious right. as well. I think he got married and I think they're having kids, but he was also pro Trump mm-hmm. at one point, so I don't know. That's when I stopped following, but I don't know if that had something to do with it as well. Yeah, well, Although, it wasn't in 2014 though. That'd be before Trump even announced these. No, but then the, so the first record came out in 2014 and the second was 2017. Yeah, but Yamada was in by that point. Possibly, I think there's a weird overlap of like I'm sure I saw them in one tour, and they were it was still Michael, yeah. and then it was your I. We'd be speculating anyway, but the point is, so that band came from the ashes of the Chariot. The Chariot played their last show in November of 2013, but I think it was pretty obvious that Scoggin had already been working on stuff because by December, a month later, he had what is that a single that they released two singles. Uh, so actually, I always thought they had. I thought the Chariot had the time booked. And then they obviously called it quit, and that's just been ten years ago. Mm. Uh, but they decided to finish the finish the band, and then in November, and the studio time was booked. And I thought Scoggin just took it and upon himself to be like, I need to do something, and I've mm. got these things in my head. But actually, he booked it just after the last show, mm-hmm. and was like, I need to do something because if I don't do it now, I'll never get round to yeah. being a band. But uh, none of those songs were really written. Like when I met him and I was speaking to him, he stayed in the studio for the entire Christmas break and he would write the song the night before. Mike would come in here one pass and then do the drums the next day. Mm. And they were literally doing a song a day and it was all like off the cuff. There was nothing pre thought or anything. Is like that, that the stuff that went in to make this album? Yep. Yeah. Right, cool. And but they did also release those singles. Yeah, there was two yeah. Midnight. It was Midnight was the first one. There was the tracks had like three in the title. Is that right? The EPs. So the it's like third time lucky and three three's company. Three's yeah, a crowd. Like, three's a crowd. Midnight, oh, that's the first EP, yeah. 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 Uh, there was some kind of thing about this being the third phase in his career, but it just sounded like Wikipedia bollocks to be honest. Maybe true. Oh, that could be true. Yeah. Yeah. So so these guys were on uh, the label No Sleep, which is the same label as La Dispute. And Wonder Years, is that right? Yes. Uh, Wonder Years haven't been on the label for ages, but yeah, they were originally yeah. on it. Um, the Chariot uh, were with who? Good Fight. Good Fight. For the last two records were Good Fight that then became E1. Mm-hmm. I believe they got bought over and E1 then put out the first 68 record. And this all traces back to a band you might well have heard of, listener, uh, called Norma Jean. <laughs> Now, what was Norma Jean? 
No, I remember his first band, they were actually, before that, they were called Ludicrous. <laughs> um, Ludicrous, which yeah. I've seen them asked about in interviews. Um, but Norma Jean, though, was reasonably high profile. They changed their name to Norma Jean, but yeah. Uh-huh, they they were, were like, sort of like, they kind of like a garage level in Glasgow band, sort of like. Reason- what, Norma Jean? Yeah. No, I think they got, I think after their first record came out, they were pretty big. Really? Yeah, big. I mean. They're still going. They are still going, and yeah. I would probably say. I'd probably put them at about the garage level. I know I, I played my old band, played a gig with them, and, and it was a like a last minute show thing, and it sold out within like three hours. They were utter chaos live. They were fucking brilliant live, man. What is um? What was Scoggin doing in that band? He was the vocalist. Was he the vocalist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so he was the vocalist in Ludicrous, and then they changed the name because the actual rapper Ludicrous was getting big. Yeah. But I think they hated the name and stuff, and that's when they changed. Rightly so. Mm-hmm. Correctly, yeah. Terrible. Um. And then I think was the first Norma Jean record recorded with the guy for Killswitch Engage, or is it the last? Were they part of that scene? Like, yeah, they're a metalcore yeah, band. So. Metalcore yeah. band. Uh-huh. Yeah, the videos are pretty. Like, I mean, I, I saw a video of them playing at Hellfest, the one that you sent along. Um, and the one when it's the one when it's not their singer, some random guy. Yeah, in other words, yeah, and they're like <laughs> vaulting off the stage yeah. a lot, and like that kind of band. I mean, like like pretty successful at the time, right? Well, I think it was kind of short lived for. Scoggin when Norma Jean got really big because then he quit. He just left. Pure, it, unexpectedly. Like when the first yeah. record came out, I think six months later, he's like, he quit to go and immediately start the chart. Right. And they just kept going on without him. And are they still, still he- going? heavy Christian? Because they were pretty dogmatic in some of their interviews and stuff like that. I don't actually know. I've not listened to them for a little while. I think it's still a lot of the same members. So I would assume they're maybe the same arc as Scoggin that it's still religious, but not. To the same extent, or who not? Were, like, like, who were some of the other Christian bands they were moving with? I mean, I know they were mentioned uh, like, you know, under and stuff as well. I'm sure, they used to play under oath. Yeah, they, they played with under oath. Under oath were quite under oath were quite an interesting act. They, they get bammed up on a, on the warp tour by Fat Mike, which was quite funny because he used to hit they used to hold prayer circles and all that, and he'd go in and just sit in them. Uh, but <laughs> international listeners, uh, bammed up means antagonised. Um, so that's what he would do, um, just because. And yeah, I think they eventually left the warp tour because of him. <laughs> Jeez, persecution, persecuting Christians. Um, but they're, they're yes. not really a metalcore band; they're kind of more of a sort of post-hardcore band. Other bands, I guess, are probably similar to them. Would be as I lay da- as I lay dying. Were they religious? They were Christian, but they never, they kind of like uh, Josh now, I suppose, and never really spoke about it in their music. It's just like something that doesn't translate to our culture here, and I'm sure the American listeners probably find it a lot more, like take it for granted a lot more, but this idea that you have these really shouty, intense black t shirt boys throwing themselves about, and yet they're really fucking strongly religious. Mm-hmm. It's so anomalous to, over here. I mean, Scotland's a very secular country, mm-hmm. um, Europe in general, I think, is a bit more secular but it's just really interesting that that there is such a big movement because these are like not household names but as Ellie Dine Under Oath Norma Jean they're like famous yeah, metal names um, over here if you were like a religious metal band it would be fucking biz- so bizarre I mean it would literally be like a total mutant yeah I think I think one thing I think which is quite interesting with that though is that um, in America like it's that whole like people can people, a lot of people will just be religious and it'll just be part of who they are but it just never bleeds into the rest of their life they'll go to church every Sunday but they'll never really they won't be like evangelical about it do you know what I mean do you know anybody that goes to church every Sunday um, 
my manager does. Um, Your and, personal manager. Yeah, but she's she's not she's not she never comes. I like I'm always surprised when she tells me that she goes to the chapel every Sunday because she doesn't come across as being even remotely kind of like that. Uh, Catholic Protestant. Catholic, yeah. Got a wee treat in store for her later on in the Nexus. I have I've got family who live in North Carolina who are evangelical Christians and they are fucking mental. Ah, they're in North Carolina. That makes yeah. sense. They are Trump Trump supporters as well. So um. uh, I can't think of any bands that are like even in the UK from the last ten years that are mm. all reli- like all the members are religious and part of their brand as the band. I guess if is anything, like being religious. You get the feeling they would like keep it under wraps. Well, a band <laughs> like a band <laughs> like Azalea Die and they ended up like it was just a what was the singer's name Tim something. Tim Lambesis, because he, he ended up going to jail for trying to get his wife assassinated, um, which is a whole fucking mental and fun story in and of itself. Um, good Christian. But he started off. He started off. Well, this is this is kind of one of the things. So he started off as being like a as like a Christian metalcore band, but then as people were as people were kicked out of the band or left, he started bringing in members who were not particularly religious. More recently, he's kind of been saying it's actually it was just a front to play with those kind of bands because they had a big scene at the time where they were from, so they were just kind of playing to go along with them. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? There is a massive market for Christian rock. I don't just mean like Christian and rock, like, like yeah. Creed mm-hmm. or like whatever. I mean like mm-hmm. quite intense, heavy, chunky, choppy music yeah. that wouldn't sound particularly family friendly, but that's a very loyal audience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We've done this in a show before, so we've like twenty-five million estimated audience or something. Yeah, and it's really fucking mental. Like, mm-hmm. How big that actually is um anyway so another thing about 68 not the 68 and um one aspect that you're particularly well qualified in grant is they are a duo they are a power duo um two-piece bands such as your own um tax purposes (laughs) (laughs) um so and transport purposes as well get everybody in a mini metro true um so actually went to see the band john last week you know john no G-O-H-N uh, Two guys Bible I, John I don't know if they're actually Their names might well be John mm-hmm. They've been going for over a decade now And they do this really sort of like riffy I don't know Like noise rock thing um, There was a, there was a bit of a movement for it Down south a while ago But it probably sounds more like The late 90s American Sort of noise rock stuff Really good One thing about the band When I see them live Is it's inherently limited By the, by the format Good chunky choppy drums, some good riffs, the guitar has some pedal stuff going on, you know, a bit of an octaver, um, that kind of thing to try and embiggen the sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can use that. Um, but it's also quite limited by format. And I just I just have a little bit of a thing about the duo formats of bands. I mean, duos with backing tracks, they've got a lot more options, Grant. Thank you. But, um, <laughs> and... You know, live guitar slash bass alongside drum duos have always just seemed really limited to me. Um, like it basically tends to become about riffing because there's only so many things you can construct. Either you're doing it on loops. Remember, Cutty's Jim in Glasgow did it with loops quite intricately to try and create the harmonies and the things moving contrapuntally and things like that. But mm-hmm. otherwise, it can be pretty tricky um, there's Eamon from Enrique the band from Scandinavia they again use loops like really intricate sort of pitch shifted loops and stuff to create these really dense textures
also as a result of that you often end up riffing on the same underlying sort of chord refrain because you can't do that dynamic thing that a band would do which is shift you know change a root note and things like that Um, I suppose some really famous examples of duos would be the White Stripes uh, Moni Gitchell thank you and then after that you've got people like Royal Blood I mean, ultimately, everybody in in, um, in a duo is looking for their like Seven Nation Army, aren't they? It's like a simple format, mm-hmm. get something that really clicks, is memorable. I mean, I think Royal Blood are obviously a bit closer to like Death from Above, nineteen seventy nine. They're doing it a bit harder and heavier, but they're really fundamentally looking for something that goes along with the football and gets really picked up in a big way. Has this catchy sort of motif and becomes you know the oh 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 oh, oh Chelsea that kind of that kind of aspect. Um, other ones, Winnebago Deal, a band for like the early, early 2000s. Again, they were really bluesy and rocky. Two kind of hairy boys, heavy, hard-hitting, frantic drummer. The guy just churning out these big riffs. Um... Two Galants, a slightly different approach to it. Oh yeah, Two Galants, sure, yeah. really, really good band. They're a bit more kind of. I don't know, Americana, folky country with a bit of kind of weird garage alternative stuff in it. They're a band actually I'd love to cover on here. Um, in Glasgow, we've had quite a few of them. I'm sure that applies to every every city, you know, from everyone listening. But there are some others that come to mind would be Holy Mountain. Started as a duo, uh, which is oh, really? guitar, ah, okay. guitar and drums, um, doing very much a kind of like Sabbathy thing, um, Andy and Peter. Uh, but then I think, as I say, you think they get to a point where you're like, we're running out of ideas here. We need something, and so they brought in Alan <coughs> on on bass and went up to a trio and just had a lot more options. Basically, oh, it is as someone whose first band was also a two piece. It usually it seems like a quite amateur as in bear. thing. As in bear, shout out, <laughs> um, and you know we actually played a night once that was a two piece night at Pivo Pivo years ago. I actually, remember and it was a uh, was it Black Mountain. Uh, porno sick, shout out Porno sick. Black Mountain Blue Fiji is that? The no, that, no, I think it was called Black Mountain. No, no. Uh, and then us. Uh, do you remember that band Run Walk? They were in Holy yes. Roar. You yeah. your work. I saw them years Brighton, ago. Brighton, where they from? I like. To say, I think somewhere yeah. like that. Because <laughs> uh, they were one of the few two pieces I ever saw that. That were like kind of on a label and stuff are yeah, doing pretty well, yeah, but like no ped, like well, loads of pedals, but not a loop one. But it wasn't, I don't think it was an octave and stuff. It was like more like it literally is like a hardcore band with no guitars, yeah. You know, what I mean, it was that kind of energy and they both mm-hmm. sang and stuff, mm-hmm. but yeah, it usually is there is only so far you can take it, yeah. I mean, another one would be uh, Bronton Skylift, oh, yeah, Ian oh, yeah. and Neil. Um, and, and partly, I mean, 
Neil went for that really noise rocky loose Nirvana Sonic Youth thing but Ian was such a Incredibly virtuosic drummer that it really became it formed like the, the bedrock of people going to see that band. It was to see this insane frenzy kind of going underneath this kind of noise rocky, slackery, grungy stuff. It's Slits of Trust, mm-hmm. a band we'll probably be talking about quite soon. Slits of Trust didn't actually last very long, which will probably be something that we mention um, in reference to them, but they went for something a bit more song based. I just think, as a format, it's just so so limiting. How how do you find it with Moni Jitchell? And I'm not trying to turn this into an interview purely about you, but just in the context of 68, I think it'll become a part of what we're talking about as their albums progress. But what is your experience of it, man? I mean, you you guys, your format is you've got live guitar, some electronics, vocals, and then a lot of backing track stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're able to build up songs a lot more densely in the back. Do, I mean, have you encountered any limitations of that? Do you, do you find it quite easy to sort of... Uh, I think because I'm playing drums, I don't feel limitations. But if it was like, if I was just a vocalist and then Dave just playing guitar and we were using like drum machines or like MIDI or something, I feel like that would be limiting because you're not, there's not like another aspect of like a human player doing it. Um, But when we started it, it was going to be a four piece band. Mm -hmm. And then because of COVID, so we recorded the first batch of stuff ourselves and then we were going to get folk in to play it. And then because of COVID, our practice room's tiny and we're like, we'll keep doing the two piece thing. And now it's just become like part of it. Um, it's really interesting. So it was never it was never pre thought like this is what we're going to do. So as we as we're writing stuff, we're still learning the process. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to be like I knew exactly what I was doing when I started this, <laughs> but I didn't. So um, circumstances shaped the format of the band. That's quite interesting. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, as it as a result, there's a lot I mean, there's a lot of advantages to it as well. Well, I think what we're doing, like I quite like enjoy like I've seen Bronto and stuff, and I quite like what was that band that was on at your work? It was a French band. There's like the two drummers, and they built all their own analog kit. I can't remember the name. Yeah. I've got the record. But it's like seeing two pieces, there's something really interesting about like how it, it feels like it'll fall apart at any moment. I think that's really interesting. Whereas like now what we're doing, it's quite hard to do that unless my phone dies mid-set. <laughs> <laughs> Which we've been close. If your mum I finished phone. a set once. <laughs> Not now, mum. Aye. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting because using backing tracks is like now you can you can add synth, you can add percussion and yeah. stuff and you have it all live and like you start thinking that way and we start thinking about what it'll be like to do it live rather than like what will be cool on record you know what I mean so this is the thing I'm coming at it's in terms of musical complexity with the backing track you can program in you know bass changes you can program in like a key change you can program in all kinds of things like that anybody building up with loops unless they're just purely percussive the, the key change thing doesn't really work because of the just the nature of the, the format and you mm-hmm. can't have you can't build complex kind of corded things where the bass drops down to a G while the guitar stays up here and it, you know you can't really do that when it's such a sparse arrangement with a lot of these bands it's just an octave or pedal where the, the low end is literally the guitar doubled down one mm-hmm. or two octaves to give it like a really beefy the bass mm-hmm. that's what that band John were doing and they, they you know they bring it in and out for impact but ultimately the bass will always be copying exactly what the guitar's doing and I think that does you start to run out of road creatively a wee bit like that I don't think you guys will have that because you're using the backing tracks but in the light of the case of Holy Mountain they felt they had to expand to to, to just have more uh, scope for the writing and I, I, I can understand that yeah. you know? well Cut Your Gym they then became a four piece they then became a four piece exactly yeah so um, I think these bands tend to either like just run out of ideas yeah. or they change the, the setup and start to incorporate these other elements like backing tracks or new members 
Oh, even uh, you and I both went to see Eamon for Enrique because yeah. we played with them years ago and then we saw was that this year? It was February or something but those guys are like incredible players and they've obviously perfected that whole loop they're about as good as I've ever seen the loop thing done uh-huh. ever. but even when we watched it there's a bit of like you're waiting for something to happen it's at the end of some of the songs and it, it literally can't because yeah. there's not a, there's not a basis there's not a third member or like a backing track or something um, so there is a ceiling in this yeah exactly you're waiting for it to shift to that third chord where you get the emotional payoff and it can't it just becomes like a jam and as great as that can be I think to get that perfect balance you do also want the ability to sometimes just change that bedrock and just emotionally strike people and those bands for me they they don't do that very often well it's like I think they're fun to watch live but after like a 45 minute set you're kind of like yeah exactly there's you know there's no way to like go beyond that here's the perfect example would be lightning bolt it's all about spectacle with lightning bolt it's all about the sheer bombast and the frenzy and the, 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 the brilliance of the guys playing it But in terms of what they can actually musically do, it's very fucking simple. Aye, and don't get me wrong, like, the two or three times I've seen them recently, it's really good. Mm-hmm. But when you hit that remark, you're sort of like, are they? Yeah, exactly. Um, but th- th- I think they only play for like an hour. I've never, I don't think they play for that long. Yeah. Or certainly I was too ill at Thema to see them. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't that? drink the tap water. <laughs> Is that what it was? I, well, I downed a litre of it. Um <laughs> Okay. Uh, bad review for Barcelona there. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely town. <laughs> Terrible water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we'll look through uh, some of their back catalogue here. Um, obviously, the first album is the one we're going to cover, In Humour and Sadness. It was released in 2014. So, we'll skip by that for the moment and come back mm-hmm. to a wee bit of detail. It was followed by Two Parts Viper in 2017. And, fuck, I noticed the Metacritic. This has got a 92% rating. Yeah, I remember it being really well received. That's when very it came fucking out. high mm-hmm. for Metacritic. Oh really? I'd, yeah, I hadn't even seen that many reviews. But uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's this is your band, technically. Aye, it's my band. Aye, mm-hmm. I'm 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 here to announce I'm the new drummer you, for six. You met the guy once. That's you in. Aye. Yeah, it seemed a it had lost its edge a little bit compared to what the early stuff was because it's just it's way more like kind of like rocky i guess like kind of bluesy yes. yes and i think part of it also like you you mentioned like the 68 is named after uh josh's dad the car Car-Man. that they had Camaro. but his dad passed away in like 2008 or something because that's what one of the chariot records was about i think wars and rumors of wars mm-hmm. is like a, a, a line from the bible and it's about like internal war not actual war um, jihad <laughs> struggle <laughs> Not actually external jihad, guys. Just and you know, internal, internal jihad. Yeah. jihad. It's, it's a good jihad, not a bad jihad. Like when you drank that water in Barcelona. <laughs> I've, I've since I've said too much. <laughs> we ain't um, jihad. Yeah, so I, I think part of it. I'm sure I read an interview. Or I've like I listened to a podcast with him, and I think he was like he always wanted to make music that he think his dad would and him would have liked. I think he used to listen to a lot of Zeppelin and Rush when they were in the right, car. Right. So I think that moved to like the southern rock stuff. Or like the kind of more like yep. very white stripey or like the Black Keys because Josh is a massive fan of them as well. Are they yeah, a duo? That, that kind of tells. Was that? Are they a duo? Yeah. Aye. 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 Yeah. Aye. And that duo. that's very like that's apparent. Yeah. 
when you when you know that you're like oh right yeah. and it's like them trying to be like a kind of weird experimental hardcore band doing that stuff so yeah one of the notes um the track the fourth one this life is old new borrowed and blue I've got next to it that it just really reminded me of Nebula you know the stoner rock band Nebula oh yeah and shared members with Fu Manchu and it's exactly that it's that it's that kind of bluesy very saturated post Kaiasi sort of alternative rock somewhere in between alternative and just blues uh-huh. yeah I mean I think because because of where Norma Jean and the Chariot and all that were from which is down you know down Atlanta there's always been that southern rock influence that's been quite apparent in our music anyway and it comes quite to the fore in 68 I think and actually when you told me that but I didn't know that about his dad that's actually that's a really cool concept for a band I think in general I, I like I really like that idea well I know, you know a lot of folk that aren't into the like love the chariot or like Norma Jean or whatever but it's like they're like you know when you hear one of those like kind of hammer on riffs like the kind of bluesy thing once you've heard one it's quite hard to dis- differentiate them between some of the tracks. Yeah, a lot. But of I think t- when you hear the context yeah. of like, oh, it's something that him and his dad had, yeah. and that's why the band's named that after the car. You're like, ah, oh, and you kind of get mm. it a wee bit because he's a he's a dad himself. So I guess there's like some sort of full circle coming for him. I mean, but, you're saying the the Black Keys, but I think like that band Winnebago deal that I mentioned as well. That was very much their thing. I mean, they toured with um, Nicola Veres stuff early on, and it was again, yeah, just bluesy, riffery. Mm-hmm. You know, like stripped back though, without the bassist or without the second guitar. It's, I just think sometimes just got a little bit plain, you know? Yeah, I mean, to get back to Two Parts Viper, I quite like the record, even though it lacks energy, the first album. Um, but there's bits in it where it's like, they do some really weird, like, dirgy, experimental, mm-hmm. crazy bits, but like, I'd say like 60 percent of the record is riffy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's, that's the hook, right? That's what they go for, and that does, spoiler alert, it starts to, you know, diminish. <laughs> The record's gone, um, but I think that this record feels like it's a good middle ground between the falling off and and, and the chaos of the first record. Mm-hmm. This record was written on the road when they were touring in Human Sadness for the most part, and just recording it in part in pockets when they could. Um, which I think is a really interesting approach. I don't know why it took so long to come out, to be honest, because there was a huge time gap between 2013 and 2017 when Two Parts Viper came out. Yeah, what record was that? E one that put that one out as well. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, I guess it could just be. Yeah. type schedules or whatever yeah. but um, I saw them tour a couple of times and that's when they started wearing the suits mm-hmm. and yeah, then, that's um, the thing right they, they're, they're and suited and booted now like Josh had always had this thing about it, he wanted to have the same energy as the chariot so that's why there's like five amps mm-hmm. he's got like four four by twelves and a eight mm-hmm. by ten or something that's mm-hmm. all for him so it's like trying to do a five piece band as a two piece but all of the amps they use I think I might be wrong it's uh, Ben Wyman's guitar amp company. Oh, really? So it's all the ones, that, uh, I can't remember the name of them, but they're like, they look quite vintage. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, he's like, when folk ask me about this music is, I'm like, what do you think it is? Because it's like, is it old? Is it new? And I think that's his whole thing. He, it's, it's, he's a massive Beatles head as well. Mm-hmm. Like he'll fight folk if they say the Beatles are shite. Beatles are shite. Beatles are also. And they do have some shit. I was talking to someone about this other day that if I go back in time and stop Octopus's Garden and that fucking Hammer song being written, <laughs> I, think, I think the world would be alright. <laughs> fucking Hammer. Maxwell Silver Hammer. I'm a big, I like a lot of McCartney stuff, but that is humming. That, that's that unforgivable, is, that song, yeah, man. I'm, I'm right. the exact same opinion. So, all that yeah. tied together that he's he's trying to do this thing of like after being in like you know experiment with hardcore bands I think he's trying to do a lot of like 60s 
bluesy stuff yeah. married with like contemporary that's like just, that's production thing, and stuff. Though, I, that's what you think that's what they're going for. It sounds like there's a lot of philosophy behind it, but it doesn't sound like there is a lot of philosophy in it. Like, it sounds like a lot of these other bands at points yeah. later on. And that's so it's, it's all very well having all that thought and that preamble and stuff, but it actually doesn't always come across. It sometimes just is a bit plain um, in some of these points. I do think, I just want to make mm-hmm. a, a, a sort of give credit here. I think the track No Apologies is pretty good. I really like yeah, that. Cool. Tr- that mm-hmm. crunchy amp effect and that started buying tears back in early spring well, I got the blues but the blues ain't got me in fact we all I don't know if it's a gate thing that they're doing or if it's just a gubbed bit of kicks I know there was talk about them using broken amps you know that's the, the, the first album that I know maybe they did it in the same it's, it's a nice tone I like that effect um, I think by contrast that no montage the which is probably the least busy of the songs it really didn't do much for me I get that it was serving a purpose. It was a nice attempt to break up the proceedings sonically, but I just think it was some of the kind of weaker writing. Um, the, the record overall, the production was definitely a beefier step up by quite quite a, a measure from the first one, but it didn't really click in terms of songwriting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the the things that I like about it are you know there's the Queen's Estonia style track, which is whether terrified or afraid. So I think that octave first thing gives me that vibe. <laughs> It's got a lot more attitude, and I really like the what more can I say? They kind of they use some of those tricks in the first record, but they do like the backwards masking and the weird delays and reverbs. But this is almost kind of a ballady sort of thing. Then it's got this big soaring outro, which I really quite liked. couple of highlights for that record for me yeah it's, I think it is, it is much more direct they, they like brevity for the most part right which is what I like, which is one of the things I like about them um, but this feels more engineered than the last one which obviously mm. wasn't engineered it was just here's a, here's a tune play the drums mate Aye. <laughs> you know what mm. I mean yeah <laughs> I think I think that's what makes the first one, we'll come back to that, but I think that's why it's so interesting because it is uh, off the cuff and yeah, nothing, nothing's think, overthought. And I think this one, they were maybe like, right, we're going to sit and spend time on it. Mm-hmm. But I think something's kind of lost in that yeah. as well. So same for the next one, Give One, Take One in Some good moments in this one, but there's also a lot of skippable stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that opening track, the knife, the knife, the knife, is a lot more playful than their other tunes. Um, there's some really beefy tones in it. Um, there's little elements of everybody from like Death from Above all the way through to like Electric Six. Like there's a playfulness. It's like a dance punk vibe to this. Record. Yeah, exactly. I think this is their indie record. Yeah. Yeah. The second track in this, and this is you talking about uh, the indie record, Bad Bite, made me cringe so fucking hard. Mm-hmm. It's trying way too hard to get a breakthrough indie disco hit from it. I've got a back pocket full of rips. You stick around to see them all. 
there's a line in it as well I got a back pocket full of riffs which even just saying it makes me blush it's mm-hmm. fucking terrible um, it has really odd production that song as well because it's got that really beefy guitar tone but the vocals are so foregrounded in it because I think because it's in pursuit of like pop points basically yeah. that it actually ends up sounding weirdly hollowed out and weedy because when you have that big beefy tone but it's too quiet it just sounds really fucking thin. yeah I, I agree like in that song the, 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 the drumming's weird and the guitars are kind of mixed lower in the mix for some fucking yeah, reason and yeah. it's just it I think it's because it's trying weird. to be a yeah. pop single almost mm. and, and that's why the vocals are so out there mm. but they're also it really doesn't lift in the chorus either as a result um, the sixth one the silence the silence the silence has a real late 60s feel to it Actually, like really deep purple nods in the riff. Uh, it's got that really heavily processed and octaved guitar line, which I think comes across like one of those overdriven organ tones for back then. Uh, Nickels and Diamonds has got the riff from I Wanna Be Your Dog at the start of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's essentially what it is. <laughs> um, and that song's got a real 70s swagger to it as well. But yeah, I did get a lot of the kind of, you're right, that kind of indie sort of feel, the kind of dance punky sort of thing, Just the all produ- across this record. Yeah, yeah, the production in general feels mm-hmm. like a lot lighter. And, and the, the way the riffs are, the drums are syncopated, different drummer this time around, yes. lends itself more towards that kind of, maybe try to push to be a bit more commercial. Yeah. But I don't think they can ever truly be commercial. Thirsty, you know? would that be fair? Thirsty. Not the band and not the day <laughs> of the week. Thirsty as in like, wanting a drink, like a little bit trying too hard to get some sort of like breakthrough success. I mean, maybe. Mm. Actually, interesting. I, I watched a interview with Josh last night. This, this record came out in March 2021. Mm-hmm. It was recorded in January 2019. Mm-hmm. So there's also a line in the record. Something about, about the pandemic. I've, I've yeah. got the vaccine yeah. to uh, fix the disease. Yeah, mm-hmm. I heard that. And everyone kept going like, oh, he knew. Or like, mm-hmm. they wrote this album really recently. And he's like, I wrote this years ago. <laughs> and there's another line as well. Something about, I can't go outside. I can't get in I can't stay here or something and everyone's like oh it's about being locked down he's like no that's like a that's like a, a mindset spiritual thing I was talking about <laughs> mm-hmm. and every, but it's like everyone just keeps thinking that's a pandemic thing but Projection. I, think, I even feel like as a the band themselves that might not be their favourite record mm. yeah that'd be interesting but that, that could also be Nico coming in mm-hmm. you know like it's just kind of like the first time recording I don't know if that was maybe there was some like change in the dynamics I don't know. Or they were trying something different. I, I don't know. I, I just think if you're watching other bands do well in a certain format and you make a little bit of a stab for success and it either does or doesn't work out creatively, I don't think it particularly works very well. Um, I think the next album, Yes And, uh, from 23, it feels a bit more skittish and the tunes are less straight ahead, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I think it's a little bit more interesting as a result. It seems less concerned with trying to people please or you know make some sort of alternative charts. Um, like even like the first one and that one with distance between there's I think it's about a minute 40 into it there's this really interesting tone this rising tone it's sort of like an alarm and sort of explosive chaos that follows it it's really nice the production's nice it's glitchy it's unsettling I think it's definitely one of the more interesting tracks overall 
So the new album is the first record that Scoggin has recorded with someone else that isn't Matt Goldman. Yeah, it was like Glass Clinics. Yes. So Matt Goldman did the first chart record all the way through until Give One Take One, and this is the first record. So do you know the story about how he got to record with Nick? No. Uh, he was on a podcast with Jeremy from Touche. That's so, a good podcast. Is that a Secret Voice? Uh, the first ever podcast or oh, something? Yeah, first ever, yeah. The um, label's called Secret Voice, yeah. So six to eight have somehow fallen in. They're like now pals with Corn. So they've been like supporting corn in America before <laughs> the pandemic. That's weird because I was reading Jonathan Davis talking about Christian rockers today as well. Actual? Mm-hmm. There you go. Because he's in a band with two of them. Yeah. Um, and he claims to be religious himself, but he just hates organised religion. And the CIA are following him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> the Info Wars. Phone on the floor on the fucking phone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there was some show where uh, Josh was like, I was standing in a circle and I was surrounded by people in corn, stone sour, and another band like that level. And I was just, and he met Nick, and Nick saw. 68 play with Stone Sour or something and he's like I really want to record you and he's like that's really nice but I know what my budget is with a label <laughs> and it's very kind that you want to do it Nick went out of his way and like made severe cuts and I think must have made up the loss himself to get 68 to record this record because he really liked them that much Nick's stories I know Nick's story is next in my nexus so his story is how he started is pretty interesting so I can totally buy that kind of goodwill from him that's pretty, yeah. pretty nice uh, in terms of other stuff on that one uh, third track removed their hooks I quite like that song Good tones yeah. Kind of catchy quite, almost Yeah quite like the riff It's really simple The only thing is The vocals in that track Don't sound like They're part of that track It's too exposed And separate And clean So it's almost Too well recorded It doesn't sound In the music mm-hmm. um, And I don't just necessarily Mean it should be quieter I just mean it doesn't sound Part of the same thing Well that's one thing They always they always seem to do well Across all their records Is the vocal production Is weird And it sits in a really Interesting place usually In the mm-hmm. mix Which this Yeah you're right that song feels as though it's a diff- almost like a slightly different band in mm. a way. An absolute howler on this called They All Agreed, the seventh track. like a photocopied Nirvana like really mm. dirty grunge thing he, and it, he uses the lyrics to rhyme the word head with dead which is just a rhyme that kills me like when people <laughs> do that uh, he's got a line the voices that are in my head again makes me blush and then there's some fucking harp appears in that song Just out of nowhere Which it's not actually that bad But it's dead incongruous Given that it's this really unremarkable Kind of grungy thing And then suddenly there's fucking harp playing in it It's a really strange Yeah I think Josh had the idea of having strings And Nick's like not using MIDI So he hired in like a a harpist And like a set of folk playing strings Could have paid Nick more and saved on the harpist (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think this is also the first record That Scoggin spends a lot of time in his um, lyrics and stuff and this is the first record that he only gave himself three days to write it all when they were recording so everything he was, trying, he was trying to do lyrics off like super last minute and, and he remembered take a day off recording to finish some of it because he hadn't done it yet and that's why he remembered that head rounds were dead 
what's it, is it rhyme rhyme zone or whatever if anyone says they don't use it they're lying what? everyone uses that when you're writing lyrics what, what is, is it what is rhyme zone uh, you type in a word and it tells you all the words that rhyme zone oh it. really oh. <laughs> oh, well. given my game away here secrets here I never ever used that man. didn't even know it was a thing <laughs> uh, I got that from Charlie XCX she uses it cool. you make, of, make, well. make of that what you will uh, <laughs> fallen her of it too eh? <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the album itself, In Humour and Sadness. Um, can I pull you up, by the way? Because in your abbreviation, you kept writing I-N plus S as though In Humour and Sadness. But I was like, no, but it's I-H plus S. Probably. <laughs> I, 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 I can't even see it in my notes, but I sure. Stickler for that kind of detail, Grant. Sorry, not good enough. Um, so this was released as two separate files for computer playback. Did you see this? I don't know whether it was like drums and guitar or whether it was like left and right, but there was some kind of concept where people would get together to listen to it on their two different laptops at the same no, time. No, I think they released one of the singles and they split the audio right oh, and left. Oh, was it a and single? Were, uh, and they, they did two videos that are like halved and you have to try play them at the same time to get the full song that was like just a thing they were doing and it's not the first band to do it I'm so sure Pelo did that in 2012 like it's not a totally original <laughs> thing Neurosis and Tribes in Europe did it with two different albums yeah. in fact and uh, Flame and Lips did it with four different records I believe <laughs> but, but yeah um, I think it's like drums isolated and then the guitars and stuff and the rest yeah. in the other video but yeah I think it was just a promo bit because they released it two weeks apart or bringing something. people together with their laptops because that's how we got to do it mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so first of all the, the track titles spell out Regret Not Full Stop Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think he's never been a guy for song titles because if you look through the Chariot stuff, it's all poems or like the last Chariot record is called One Wing, but the, the track list reads Forget Not Your First Love, Speak in Tongue in Cheek. So like they just write songs and then they put the, the titles to match the album. Like they don't have like song titles mm. as they're writing it. Gotcha. Um, um, so this, this has got an element of that really roiged chaos that I kind of associate with the 3-1-G label. It's, 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 it's much more gnarly in its production and its delivery, less maximalist, certainly, you know, the, the tones and the guitars, there's less of that kind of like fully saturated octaver thing. It's a bit, just a bit more naked and I can really hear Boney Jitchell in this, like your own, your own project. I can hear aspects of delivery and things you've taken from this uh, in a positive sense, like it's really high on energy. Uh, like this is something we said about the, the albums that follow it. That they maybe lack, but this one has a lot of that. There's a lot of rawness. It's a lot more feral and clearly less concerned with like chart success. Didn't have any real expectations from mm-hmm. the sounds of it. Um, I much prefer the vocal approach on it as well, the pitching of it. I think his vocal approach in this is great. I think it's something that you pitch wise are kind of co- quite close to as well when you're singing. But it's a it's a pitch that I really like in vocals for for this kind of music. It's just it doesn't sound too macho or like hard man. But at the same time, it doesn't sound too shrill. It's it's just a really good range. Yeah, it's, um, it's that. Um, it's a fry. He does a fry scream. So like, that's one of the earliest tricks. If you learn how to scream properly, it's one of the earliest tricks you get taught because it's one of the easiest things to do if you learn how to do it properly. And, can you send me that video? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because you can really fuck your voice up by not doing it. So I know from experience. Uh, I, I played a show on Sunday and I've only just got my voice back yeah, this morning. That's, so. that's not the place you want to be. Um, but you can totally tell he does this because he's got so much power, like so fucking much power. You can hear it. His voice is fucking incredible in this record. Yeah, man. Really I good. love everything about it. Yeah, he's, he's just wanting to be Kurt Cobain 
like and I don't mean that dis- like in a in a shitty way. I mean like I think that's like what he's aiming for. Mm-hmm. But he's actually landed in something that is much better than Kurt Cobain could ever do. Like trying to be heavy vocals. I think easy tiger. <laughs> well, no, I, I like no, in, I mean, in some I, aspects. There's, there's Nirvana stuff in this in this music, but all, I think aye, the second track is, is literally. I'm, I'm sure that's the same guitar tone as something off a. It's a yeah, but it's it's a lot more modern, like the vocal aye. approach here. I just really like where he's landed uh, with it. Um, the vocals just feel really part of the music as well, which is, is just a, something that is lacking, I think, certainly in that Yes And album. So yeah, this, the songs feel really natural, they don't feel contrived, this is obviously, it owes a lot to the way it was written, the, the way you described about how he was putting stuff together and they were coming in and recording it straight away. Um, it's just, there's a really natural flow to the music, which, which I kind of warm to. Uh, will we go through the tunes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first one's called R, because obviously this is regret not full stop spelled out over the course of ten tunes, right? Track one, R. Yeah. Um so with this tune what really struck me was that like two minutes forty, isn't it? When the drum stuff really starts to go madcap. That's really, really good. It's a really nice feature. And then the bass joins in and lifts it again. It's a nice and simple song, but it's constructed with multiple moments of oh, nice. You know, it's got. It's not just one moment in the song where you're like, oh, nice touch. It's actually got a good few moments uh, where there's a nice touch in there. Mm-hmm. The bit at the end when there's the hard pan to drum kits. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, Uber fan, saw them like four times in short succession of them actually starting to tour as the, the two piece and they never played that song the same twice they had like big jam sections and they do covers I saw them doing at the drive-in song in the middle of it or like they did like a chorus <laughs> yeah and then they went out and they did like a bit where he's like it goes dead quiet and then came back up and then the next time I saw them they just played it really short I think that was the whole thing like that's why they don't have song names or anything they want everything to they don't write set lists they actually go on and be like sorry I'm hold my fingers up and they just like pick a number and then they play a song and stuff and it's all just like eye contact and they can lengthen bits and come back and stuff and yeah. like makes it really interesting but uh it's interesting hearing that's how they thought the song would be on the day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aye, and then aye. it was like morphed like i think one time i saw them it was literally like 12 minutes long yeah that was just one incarnation of it that happened yeah. to capture for which i think is like just super cool for like a two-piece band to mm-hmm. have not just do what's on the album yeah it's the first take isn't it really this song all the records and this all the songs in this record are first takes because it's I've listened to it. Okay, play it now. <laughs> I think that was the thing. It's yeah. like whatever the first thing is you play, that's that's mm. what it will be. Yeah, that's a take. They start yeah. changing it as they're touring it as well, which is like interesting because then it's like, oh, that maybe what if they'd actually sat for six months, being like, what should this be? Mm-hmm. It might have, but then I think it's taken that energy away. But yeah, um, I love the, the. I just love the guitar tone on it. I just want to say, I think the really scuzzy kind of nasty thing is like really tasty. Um, it sounds like a twisted white stripe song to me <laughs> towards the end. You know, I think he is a big white stripe southern. fan as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but, but it sounds more southern because of his voice, and I, you hear the amp start to break in this song as well. I think this is the one. Did you guys watch the documentary that I sent you? No. So that was the making of this album, and there is one song where they the get amps, a, yeah. they get a, a like a one by twelve Marshall, and they literally roll everything up full. That's what the riff is at the end of this song. I think mm. is just like the amp is up as yeah. loud as it can go. Thank <laughs> you. 
I don't know if it's in that documentary, but I did read that apparently, like, they broke a bunch of the guy's amps. All the vintage amps. Yeah, they just broke them all because I think that's the, the noisy bits scattered mm. through or like panned the kind of heavy sections of the songs is just the amps dying. They recorded it all and then like panned it all in, buddied it and stuff. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> now, I wonder how much this album cost to make. If he got Matrix at the start and then he's like, here's the bill for all the amps that you've fucking blown up as well. If it was those wee shitter Marshall 1x12s though. Um, well, no, that was just for the this section. But they were playing through like the, I think it was like a lot of Vox ones. And then um, I can't remember the name. But when you see them, you know they're like from like the 60s and 70s. And they're not new. And they were all like getting absolutely pummeled. And I'm pretty sure it's one of them that blew up. So, <laughs> uh, You mentioned it actually a while back. But uh, the second track, E, uh, really has a lot of Nirvana about it. <laughs> Um, nirvana this, I guess mm. um, Feels more honest and open as a tune You can tell that it's quite spontaneous uh, it's, it's fine, I think, in terms of writing Decent two-piece grunge song I think it's, it strays a little bit too close to the Vines for me, maybe Remember the oh, Vines? Okay. Mm. That's uh, not, like, off the top of my head but I'm I gonna get free I'm Oh yeah, now I know Again, are you humouring me? Or? Yep Oh, that's a shame. I thought that was quite a good impression. It was not bad, I. <laughs> Less not as Australian as him. Yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna cut them in to the podcast now? No. <laughs> he hates them. <laughs> no. I just did. Jokes on me. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I moved house, like about almost two years ago, um, I was in a pound store and I was buying some records for the sound as a pound, and I did see highly evolved by the vines and yeah. I bought it I bought it I, I didn't have a chance to give you it or bring it on the show and I've lost it now I know what a shame <laughs> what a shame <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I didn't even know I think we hadn't even discussed the vines at any point but I was like Chris Chris will probably fucking hate that <laughs> uh, yeah this tune any thoughts on it Mark? yeah it, it reminds me of Queens of the Stone Age in places I think just with the, co- with the, key, the way the keys come in you know in the chorus but his voice is very southern in this very very southern I think yeah, the, the bit when he says believe is like, mm-hmm. he, he slips it a wee bit and it's like, because I had never really noticed, like when I, I only listened to the track from like 2011 onwards, I really got into them a lot just the same year they quit, so mm-hmm. I never got to see them. Uh, but yeah, you don't really hear it a lot. They have like the audio samples of like old like country songs in the records and stuff, mm-hmm. but I never really clocked that they were like that southern with yeah. the accents and shit. Mm-hmm. And then when you hear it in this record, it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> but that's also, I think in the second track, there's a bit when it kind of cuts down towards the end. Is that real like country guitar section like in the kind of quiet bit before it comes back in? Yeah. But then that that that's where like some of the country bluesy stuff is starting to seep in. But it's like little bits that are like tasteful. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the next record becomes like well, it's it's a bluesy riff for the whole song, yeah, as yeah. opposed to being like a yeah. like a part of it. So. I don't know. If it, I don't know if it's this record or the next one, but there's like a, a whole a whole song almost that's just finger picked, like dun, 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 and it's, it's sound, nine. And yeah. this, yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. yeah, it is. Yeah. It's very country. Um, the original version of that was going to be much faster, mm-hmm. like like an actual like is Bojangle a term? 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, like an actual banjo, sort of like, dun, 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 mm-hmm. supposed to be like that. Oh, and right, he okay. slowed it down. Yeah. And it's in a weird time. It's in like 11 4 or like 9 4 or something. So he's like doing interesting stuff to make it weird and it's not just too country. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, which is why it's all good. But we'll get to that one. Sorry. Uh, the third one, uh, G. I've written stoner energy But uh, it strikes me That it should probably be Stoner lethargy um, mm. The vocal pitching And energy On this album At this point Actually reminds me A wee bit Of some of the places The Bronx ended up at This this one Again with the vocals Neither macho And threatening Nor shrill and great And it's a really good place For his voice This song Totally swaggers In the second half mm-hmm. As well It's, it's alright I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it But um, there's a lot of elements About it That I like I just It just maybe a little bit aimless I think uh, Is this the first single They put out as well I think, I, I think like it one was of the, Yeah And it's got the big Sing along bit at the end It's got like It's like an O When you see them Do the, this one live it, it makes you enjoy it more In record You mm-hmm. know they're kind of Going forward mm-hmm. with that Oh B or Bart from uh, Birds and Row does the guest vocal on this song. That was back when Birds and Row were, anon- were like an anonymous band before they revealed who they were, which didn't really make much difference because nobody knew who the fuck they were. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it was like just, me, I'm currently anonymous on yeah. purpose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we do this podcast anonymously. <laughs> uh, a, I, I like the mix in this song. You know, the drum mix is like part of it's in the right channel, part of it's in the centre. Um, there's a weird guitar plonk on the left side. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just a really interesting mix. And my headphones, I listened to it, I was like, this is fucking weird. This sounds bizarre, but it was cool. I like the Octave Fuzz as well. I'm a big fan of Octave Fuzz. And they don't, they, they don't overuse it in this record. They only bring it in a few times as well. Yeah, just kind of like for big sections and mm-hmm. stuff. Whereas like the next album is on. Bit of it, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, on the pan and stuff. That's one of the other things I love about this album is that the more you listen to it on like better headphones or something, Certainly in the car, like when you hear the panning, sometimes there's lots of stuff by the din, and it's lots of like like in the noise overdub stuff, and mm. like like mm-hmm. vocals, and like kind of whispers and stuff. Josh is a massive John Lennon fan. Through the charity, mm. he always did. He always did the lyric for them. Imagine that was like a big thing in part of the show. But I just listened to the Plastic Ono Band a few weeks ago, and there's bits where they just like in parts of the song they like hard pan the piano and the drums mm-hmm. left and right, the vocals up the middle, and they do that all over this album where like pits will pan out, yeah, and then when it cuts in, they pan center and like mm-hmm. boost it and stuff. Um, whether or not that's intentional that's what I guess was mm-hmm. like the thing he's doing so that's uh, quite interesting the fourth one are genuinely quite an awkward little track it manages mm-hmm. to break up the stodge of the record in the verses you know without getting insipid or anything too schmaltzy but uh, the, the track's got like a real slacker intent it gets a bit closer to Nirvana land again though when the fuzz comes in mm-hmm I 
I like the drum mix in this one as well. There's like a weird gated reverb effect on it almost, which is cool. So parts of it sound like it's getting stopped by the gate quite quickly, which is weird. It gives us really unsettling atmosphere. My favourite feature of this band, like I said, is his voice. And around in this song, it's really perfectly pitched where his voice is just on the verge of like singing and screaming and it just breaks up. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's that's a fucking brilliant technique for a, for a screaming vocalist to just nail, man. And it just, just really elevates, I think, his... Uh, the, the songwriting in the band for me because a band like fucking the, the Black Keys and stuff like that are never going to have a vocal that's as frantic and as brilliant as this but also so controlled his voice is really controlled when he uses it well you know uh, the fifth one uh, E uh, it's a looser spankier kind of bluesier track it does a decent job Um, has a bit of a mud honey feel at moments yeah, mm-hmm. um, kind of garageiness and mud honey as I say it's totally decent uh, not spectacular it's got a guitar solo in it which they haven't actually done on this record so far um, and it's also got some really spooky organ as well which, is, which I quite like Has it got like quite a bit of backing tracks in the middle mm-hmm. towards the end and stuff? But yeah, I think it's. I would have guessed this is one of the kind of later ones. Like, I don't think this is a mm-hmm. one of his first ideas. I imagine yeah. this is like fourth night in a row. He's like, "Fuck, I need a song." Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I know. I still love it, but like, I, I agree. It's like it, f- it seems a slightly less, a bit more aimless than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting what they did with it. But I think a lot of it is like production stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, six T. The opening riff from the right speaker has a really Albini quality to it. You know, it's really quite sharp and naked. Um, I like how the song kind of trips and stumbles a bit. It keeps things quite varied. Um, and actually has a bit of a Mariachi El Bronx feel for me. Obviously, until it gets really nasty and jarring in that bridge, the bridge is quite intense, but it has just a swing to it, a slightly kind of Central American mariachi El Bronx mm-hmm. swing. This is when you were earlier on, Grant, you were talking about how they use like noise and broken amps as a connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Just, they do, do that all over this song, and it's the defining feature of the song for me, I think. Until also around, around two minutes 40, they're bringing church bells and piano. <laughs> Which is totally bizarre. It sounds like church bells. They're like really big clanging things. Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah. a timpani and stuff as well. It goes like yeah. full orchestral. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, like this is one of the highlights. I think this track for me. It ends album. with it was perfect. You just said it was perfect. Yeah, at yeah. The end as well, which is quite fun. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, just you talking about the start of that song. Actually, yeah. that is just a fifty-seven on the guitar. Like, there's no amps or anything like that. Uh. 
because um, he wanted this really scratchy yeah. thing so when it kicks into the that was in the making of thing as well um, it's really interesting that he's like whatever they were doing before it's like it's not working yeah. and the guy's like I'm going to put a 57 on that the guitar and he's like this will suck <laughs> um, but it came out really no, good but good it, it totally worked for the track yeah. yeah well you're saying you think that's one of the strongest ones I actually think the 7th one N is one of the strongest ones There's a, a moment in it, I think about two minutes onwards, where it gets quite melodic and with a lot of glitchiness over the mm-hmm. top. I love that, man. Um, I think the album needed the melodic relief that mm-hmm. this track brings with it. Uh, the vocals are really fierce basically but they don't mm. detract from the melody and it, it gets quite big there's quite a good payoff in this tune I think it's it's one of the best bits of writing they've done uh, the way he transitions between you can really hear it and his singing and screaming voice you can hear him do the transition on this song and it is just so powerful man mm-hmm. um, like I said I can't speak highly enough of his voice I think it's brilliant I like the big ending of this song mm-hmm. it's got like the organ comes in and it really bulks up the sound you know what would it just been a guitar with loads of pedals and effects on it and a drum good to have that backing track because it makes it feel like a big ending yeah it's a tune that benefits the album overall mm-hmm. definitely um, I'm confused because my fault right but I've written Sad Boy Country for this one but also for track T I wrote other Sad Boy Country so I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of confused which ones uh, wrong um, <laughs> 8 oh, we, we talked about Big opening riff. Uh, overall, sounds great. It ebbs and flows really well between the sort of groovy momentum and the juddering post-hardcore bits. It's a strong track. Uh, the riff in it actually reminds me of a band called Kling Clang, which was a band of mostly nice people that had one riff. It's decent. Described a lot of bands. <laughs> the riff reminded me of uh, the Black Keys because it's got that bluesy sort of thing going on. Which I can kind of take or leave, but they've got a really fierce guitar tone for it, which mm-hmm. is fine. It kind of becomes a jam in the middle, which is cool. It gives it a nice organic vibe. Um, it probably wasn't a jam, it was just, here's a guitar part. <laughs> 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 what are you going to do here, mate? It's yeah. like, well... <laughs> Uh, nine T, uh, which would you say more other other sad boy country? Other sad boy country. Uh, so I mean, it is. It's a little oddball, vaguely countryish song. It's like, you know, the tune in the context of the album is like a little sorbet, right, which sticks to that slacker tone that works mm. in its own right. Um, I don't think it's a highlight in the record by any means, but it is definitely a change of pace that is intended to benefit the balance of the album overall. So mm. it's serving a purpose, even if I don't particularly like it as a song. I like the texture of it being here. I think uh, that's got those electronic beeps and boops that come in that's towards the end, yeah, towards yeah, the end yeah. which I think is a nice touch.
towards the end of his vocal just loops and then gets submerged in layers and layers of his own voice with reverb and mm. delay on them. I think that's really cool. And then it just becomes like digital noise at the end, I think. I like the fact that they've just got this completely different texture. I'm not too sure why you'd have this as the second last track of the record. Yeah, the, the placing is a bit weird. I, I assume it's because at the end it obviously like filters out and then the next track has such a weird start. Um, uh, no, I agree with Mark though. I think it could probably have, have done me appearing earlier in the record itself, maybe around about six or seven or something like that. But I mean, it's it's fine. It, it, it does a job. I think the 10th one's interesting, which is just called Full Stop or Point or Period. Whatever. Yeah. Period, they would call it. Yeah. Dot, yeah, yeah. Period, yeah. This, this one really showcases his vocals really early on. Yes. It highlights how much power is in those. And as we say, this this record definitely features his best vocals as per my tastes. Um, this song has more of a nihilistic sort of noise rock feel to it. It undulates just between two frets in that kind of dead sinister way. The the fact that the vocal's a bit lower in register, it's it's grungier. It's it's actually a bit like see Alison Chains if they forgot to double track. It's got a little bit of that going on to you and it's, it's a pretty misanthropic ending as well. It, it mutates into like a bit of an anti-rock thing as well. Mm-hmm. See, that when the guitar is a lot more minimalist, it's, it's akin to like your Arab and Radar types and then it segues into something as well that, you know, that like the picked bit, the bit where it gets quite pretty, mm-hmm. reminds me a little bit of mono era Icarus line. Which is oh, yeah. no bad thing at all. You know, they've got that raw garagey thing that there's quite a lot of similar energy there, albeit Icarus Line's a, a bigger group. Um there's there's comparisons with a lot of bands that I rate on that tune and it's quite an interesting mix. I, I think it's a quite a sinister song and his voice is, is brilliant on this too. It's got a melodic chorus around one minute seventeen, then they change it up at three minutes ten to some kind of off kilter groove thing, and then again at four minutes they've got this big dramatic section and then around five minutes it just seemed to keep just chucking on layers of him screaming but it gets submerged in electronic noise again it's like, it's kind of like using the same thing they used at the end of the last song mm. but to a much greater effect I think and it just becomes piano and guitar before a dead stop at the end I think this is a fucking brilliant record end of the end of this record it feels like the complete culmination of the entire journey you've been on throughout the, the whole thing you know and this song really works for me at the end of the record yeah. it does have em- elements of the whole record in the one track mm-hmm. I thought and um, again, in the making of the see the start when the it's the drums and the guitar playing kind of weird pan, but they're like being up and slowing down. That was like a glitch. They didn't really know really? why that was happening, <laughs> and they were like, "What is this?" But they 
kept it. Mm. Um, and all the warble and stuff like that, they're using like an old, it's not a space echo, but it's like an earlier version of that. Mm-hmm. I think the album cover is actually the device they used. Oh, right, okay. okay. Yeah. And it's the, you can see the tape in the top. Yeah, yeah. That's what they're running all the guitar through, like when it, when it cuts down to just that kind of triplet mm-hmm. or in the three, four thing. So it's interesting that that was the thing that was like fucked or like they broke it or whatever. And it's then used in the end of the track. I don't know if it's used in the rest of the album, but it's certainly used in that part mm-hmm. of the guitar and maybe in the vocals or something. But it's interesting. They were like, that's the album cover. Mm. Um, but even all the imagery used for this album is like old handheld tape recorders from the 60s. Yeah. And like that. Yeah. He's clearly trying to start the thing of this is a vintage. contemporary vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they're using all like old amps and stuff and like trying to blow them up and... Well, maybe not trying to blow them up, but successfully <laughs> blow them yeah. up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree that this is their best album, um, mainly because it, it feels uncontrived, and I think it avoids being overworked or overproduced. I, it has a lot of energy. It's got some really caustic moments of performance. The vocals, in particular, are really strong. There's loads of glitchy bits in there, and it, uh, as we the other albums, but I think they feel more integrated on this record. They feel more comfortable. Um, it's a good record overall. I'm not blown away by it, but in saying that, I also am mindful, especially with the Nirvana comparisons and some of the noise rock stuff. I don't want. I don't want to sound condescending. I think I've somewhat left this music behind a wee bit. I think I've grown out of it a wee bit. If I was a wee fresh faced wee boy like you, Grant, I'd probably be right into it. But um, guilty as charged. I think back in the day, this would have pushed a lot of buttons for me. I think I've heard a lot of this stuff, and I. I've, I've missed the boat a wee bit but I do respect how well realised it is so yeah I mean it's you know we don't give points here but it's not a 10 for me it's maybe like closer to a 6 or a 7 I, I had this record when it came out um, it must have been because there was a lot of hype around about it in the music press at the time and it never really never really stuck with me like the, the Chariot were quite critically acclaimed in their time by a lot of music publications despite the fact they were a Christian band which is partly why they got so big is because they had a crossover appeal but yeah this record never stuck to me back then it stuck, definitely stuck to me now I think it's a really it feels like a really fun loose improvisational record like it is and you can feel that in it it feels like they're having a fun time you know breaking stuff and just like writing shit just for the hell of it and then bringing it together and seeing does that work I wonder if there was other stuff that never made it on the record that were songs that were maybe not quite fully featured or, or you know that, that out. would be interesting to hear the ones that didn't make the cut as, mm-hmm. and like why I don't yeah. know um, but the fact that we were able to write something so quick and improvisational and have it come up sounding quite fully formed is a testament to the talent of both of the guys involved I think in this in, in this record um, and it does feel like it's his own thing, which it shouldn't, because it was, it was record, the way it was recorded. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's I think it's a good record. Um, and I will I will probably come back to this one. I think because I quite you know I was quite into it. So yeah, uh, I I listened to it like once a year, like about the, the time of year that it came out. But I guess I was trying to take emotion out of this because I listened to it when it came out and loved it. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, like slight nostalgia thing with it now because it's ten in a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to take that away obviously I think I got real into the chariot and then they split and then the next thing was seeing this so I think I went and saw it as much as I could because it's I think the, when I first told you about this record my angle on it was it's very different circumstances but quite similar to Nirvana I think in the way of like like the chariot were doing so well they put out their biggest record and they've been a band for 10 years and then I think it was very amicable that they all split I think there was like a lot of good reasons as why to they, why they want to stop and I think Scoggin just being like I, I can't just stop and he immediately like less than a month after the band of 10 years stopped he went straight in and was like i need to make something Mm. and he came out with this 
it, it reminds me a bit of the first Foo's record, mm. not sonically, but like similar energy. And I don't think you, I, you'll never be able to recreate that Quite context as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't think it, like the thing of being in a band for ten years and getting so big and realizing that everyone loves your band when you've now decided to split. And then be like, I need to make something myself that's just me and it's going to be like totally different, a bit like off the cuff or whatever. It is a bit like the first Foo's record in the way of like, he didn't know what to do. He just was like, I'm just going to pour this into a record. And you'll never be able to recreate that Mm -hmm. energy. And I think that's what's happened with the subsequent records. Until the new one, I think the new one's the best one they've done since this. But I still think the first album's their best one. Was it the context or was it the fact that he tried to write it all in a week or like 10 days, whatever he was writing it? Um... But I think it's like a really unique album written in a really unique circumstance. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, good shout again. Uh, interesting name to bring to the table. And you seem to keep finding the bands I don't know. Oh, that's me. No, the, the, that <laughs> the well is empty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this week we also have an exes. Uh, and Mark, we decided to do this in honour of the late Shane McGowan. Yes. Uh, died at the age of 65, was about a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are going to nexus this to Shane McGowan. A complicated series of connections between different things. Right, Grant. So uh, you didn't do an exit, <laughs> did you, mate? Totally forgot. Yeah, because you'd have been going first. Um, so that leaves it to us. Um, I think uh, before we do that, we'll just throw in that little story I mentioned earlier on about I thought somebody might go via Bono or... Well, I've got you two in mind, so... All right, okay. So, or Noel Gallagher, because just there's a decent anecdote out there. There's there's a couple of anecdotes about Shane McGowan, but there's one anecdote out there where Noel Gallagher, Shane McGowan and Bono went out on the lash in Paris. I think it was like a day before Oasis were meant to be playing there or, or Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds or somebody was meant to be playing there. And they got absolutely shit-faced at as you might expect. And Noel Gallagher said he woke up the next day feeling it as bad as he's felt in his entire life, like full body shakes, absolutely confined to the hotel, just hellish, like couldn't even sit up. And uh, at, at some point, Bono uh, said to him, um, oh, I just need to nip out and meet someone. And so Noel Gallagher, like he's in the hotel, he's all comfy, he tries to order some food, gets settled down, turns on the TV, and Bono had gone out to meet the president of France. <laughs> um, Can't make that shit and up. With, yeah, uh, so, uh, and, and Noel Gallagher was like, Bono is some fucking drinker, I had no idea, because he said he felt absolutely, like, death warmed up. Um, I, I'm surprised at that, because surely, if someone asked you who would be more hung out, hungover out of the three of them after a night out, you would... You would say Bono, Bono. Yeah. or certainly not Noel Gallagher. Yeah. No way. <laughs> Nobody knows what uh, Shane McGowan was doing at this point. He might have been out doing still drinking. Still <laughs> drinking. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So Mark, you or me? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, so the as we discussed, the most recent '68 album was was produced by Nick Raskolnik. Um, I brought him up before in the pod. He's a quite a well-known producer now, but his, his story how he came up was kind of interesting. He's from Knoxville, Tennessee. He started out producing bands for his friends on an eight-track recorder. He was in a band called Hyper Tribe, um, which were later called Movement, and then he moved to LA in 1995. He started working at Sound, Sound City Studios. 
on the advice of Brian Bell from Weezer um, and eventually he learned how to mix and produce records there which is pretty cool in 2001 he left and he was really struggling to get any work and Dave Gore remembered him from being in Sound City Studios and he asked him to do to produce a track for the Godzilla soundtrack that they, that they were on and then it led to him basically working on one by one with the Foo Fighters so basically Dave Grohl was responsible for bringing Nick Raskolinix the, the producer into the world just Thus by completes the Dave Grohl yeah, nexus exactly but the reason I bring up Sound City is because it's had loads of bands through the uh, through its doors over the years. We're talking like After the Gold Rush by Neil Young was recorded there, Fleetwood Max self-titled album. They've had Cheap Trick, Elton John, Audio Speedwagon, Santana, Dio, Guns N' Roses, Slayer, Caius, so many, so many. Queens of Stone Age actually, Rated R was, was recorded there. Even, in fact, You Come Before You was even recorded there. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Which we didn't even, <laughs> didn't even notice at the time. But yeah, a recent user of the studio was the band U2 Because I don't know if you guys know, you've probably seen it in the news They did a residency at the Sphere in Las Vegas Did you see that? <laughs> I did, I did, yeah It looked like, the, it looks insane Oh, it looks absolutely amazing Yeah, it's yeah. the it's, trippiest thing I think I've ever seen Have you not seen it when they control it like a giant emoji So that like, if there's a helicopter flying over, they turn it into a giant face That follows the helicopter through the air And there, there was people playing golf on a golf course And it was like watching them And then when they hit the ball, the eyes followed the ball and stuff like that But it's enormous It's it's. Pretty spectacular, actually. Yeah. Uh, did you see videos from inside it when YouTube were playing? Yeah, I did. Yeah. That's. I want to go there. I would. I would actually sit through YouTube just to see that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> it's just. You can try. <laughs> yeah, I could try. Yeah, but I can't. People must have get seasick and all sorts, man, because it's that it's really something spectacular. Yeah. But yeah, if you're interested in knowing more about it, the actual engineer they're into making it is insane as well. Like worth googling because it's a true feat of technology and. You know, civil engineering company together, it's fucking brilliant. We're going to try and build one in, in London, but near, near West Ham, I guess the Olympic football stadium. Uh, but the London government went, nah, not doing that. We need to build houses in that area instead. <laughs> houses are useful. Yeah. Anyway, they recorded this song called Atomic City at Sound City Studio. Usually they record in their own studio in Dublin. I don't know, I guess they were just in Las Vegas, so they did this one song with Steve Lillywhite, who's been a long term producer. And uh, he also produced two records by the Pogues, uh, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, which was the, the record that has Fairy Tale of New York on it, and uh, Peace and Love as well. So, And Shimmy Cowan was in the Pogues. <laughs> uh, also was he? <laughs> also, his Thousands Are Sailing, which is their best tune. Did you work upon the railroads? Did you write the streets of crime? Where your dollars from the White House Where they from the five and time Did the old sons start to cheer you And the dust still make you cry Did you count the months and years Or did your teardrops quickly dry Amazing Um, okay, uh the 68 or 68, uh, Josh Scoggin was in Norma Jean, uh, albeit temporarily as we discussed. Norma Jean, take their name from Marilyn Monroe, uh, Norma Jean Mortensen, although her name was spelled with an E in the end, Norma Jean. Uh, she changed that in 1956 to Marilyn Monroe. Um, Marilyn Monroe, a.k.a. Norma Jean Mortensen, uh, also happens to have been raised, at, at least for a time, in a household of devout Christian science. Oh, yeah. Really? Um, her aunt, in particular, was devout and dressed like a nurse, because it's the whole thing about Christian yeah. science, is that they believe that faith can heal you. Um, Marilyn Monroe carried one of the Christian science prayer books in her handbag with her, even when she was quite successful. 
So uh, Christian Science uh, was formed in 1866 in New England by Mary Baker Eddy. Its primary book is not the Bible, so I, th- I think it's kind of it's contested whether or not it's actually Christian. Anyway, uh, its primary book is not the Bible, but rather her own book, Science and Health, with key to the Scriptures. The Bible is still very important, though it's the other big book, but has quote been corrupted and contains manifest mistakes, which is something I can certainly agree on. Um, the, the they believe that matter is an illusion and that death and illness and so on are all imaginary consequences of losing connection to God so presumably she imagined herself dead at some point um, the Christian science case of a woman called Dorothy Sheridan prosecuted in 1967 is actually what led in a big way to the USA's medical neglect exemption laws uh, they came in under uh, Nixon um, and those are the laws that sort of prevent parents in about, I think it's about, still about 34 states being prosecuted for allowing their children to suffer and die by refusing routine medical procedures uh, so this obviously applies to Jehovah's Witnesses as mm-hmm. well you know, so things like blood transfusions, antibiotics, which is what Dorothy Sheridan was prosecuted for, uh, organ transplants, things like that. Easily remedied medical cases where parents, for reasons of their own beliefs, allow their children to suffer and die needlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the best and simplest way to put it. Um, Christian scientist founder Mary Baker Eddy also originally included the Eucharist in her beliefs, but eventually phased that out. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Let's just say it's a little bit analogous with the ways that... Um, they co-opted sort of pagan festivals, right? So Christianity has a long history of putting holidays and stuff like that on dates that were already significant. So Easter, you know, and Halloween and Christmas and things, they all appear at points of the year where there are already these big established pagan festivals and they were sort of piggybacking on them and then reappropriating, just redirecting the enthusiasm. After a couple of generations, folk were like, why did they celebrate this? Oh, it's Jesus, I think it was. It was always Jesus. You know, so it was a bit of that. So the Catholic Eucharist, there's a school of thought that thinks it may be doing a similar thing when it when it when it came into being, because in ancient Europe it was a widespread practice of uh, <laughs> medicinal cannibalism. Okay, um, so medicinal cannibalism or medicinal vampirism, which is a genuine thing, apparently a really big thing back in the day, um, all across the world in various manifestations, but certainly in Europe. Uh, for example, executioners in Europe. Um, often did this really successful side hustle as kind of like healers uh, selling human blood for people you know suffering from epilepsy for example they would they would drink that um, there's mark you like this bit there's copious anecdotal uh, reporting of uh, in Denmark uh, of crowds surrounding executed bodies uh, to catch the fresh blood so you know beheadings catching the fresh blood um that was known as medicinal vampirism. Um, Christians apparently at one point in history for a long time were distinguished by their particular fetish for medicinal cannibalism. So, like, for example, the Jews saw the Christians as being peculiar because cannibalism in that sense was so prevalent. They were like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Why are they always, like, drinking blood to heal and eating desiccated body parts and things like that? So the idea that the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is kind of part of that? Yeah, so there's there's a, there's a sense that um, the Eucharist was brought in to sort of try and divert that energy in the same way as supplanting, you know, f- festivals that it that it was brought in to sort of like you know try and bring this under control because there's obviously a lot of negative consequences that come from drinking fucking blood, human blood that may be really contaminated and and meat as well as just cannibalism in general being uh, generally a bad idea. Um, the thing is, in the 17th century, medicinal cannibalism actually had the resurgence among the 
Protestants because when the Protestant you know, Martin Luther, we spoke about this recently, actually, the Protestant Reformation, all that rejected the Eucharist, or rather, re- rejected transubstantiation. They no longer saw it as eating the literal body and drinking the literal blood of Christ. And again, I just want to re-emphasize this. Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Yeah. It literally turns into Jesus's flesh and blood. It's not a symbol. It's not a metaphor. It's 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 not that. It's like, actually quite literal. It's lit- like the, the, the doctrine is that it turns into flesh and blood. It's not, it, it represents the flesh and blood. No, it turns into flesh and blood. If you're Catholic, that is the actual belief, is that it turns into flesh and blood. I always, like, growing up, I always found that to be totally bizarre. Oh, man. it's fucking no. mental. Absolutely mental. With slightly less mental, the the Protestant faiths, for example, like, would, would believe that, oh, it just represents the flesh and blood. It's like, alright, so we're just pretending to eat and drink Jesus. Um, but anyway, that's what they believe. But then apparently that led to a resurgence in medicinal cannibalism. I don't know why, maybe because there were so few reliable treatments in the, this period of history anyway, that people resorted back to this sort of um, placebo effect of drinking warm blood. But even as recently as the 17th century, there were English ministers writing things like, uh, human blood drunk warm and new is held good in the falling sickness. <laughs> So, I mean, it's it was still a thing up until not that long ago. And, you know, all this whole idea, like, condescending idea that cannibalism was practiced by naked black people with bones through their noses and stuff that goes back. Not at all. This this was a widespread practice. There's also a thing you can look at up yourself, but uh, mumia, which was to do with the bitumen that was used to embalm mummies and the fact that people would consume it once it had, like, gutted all their organs out. And there was the thing we do with desiccated mummies being ground down and oh, all kinds of things. So this was a fucking big, big deal. Anyway, talking of cannibalism, <laughs> cannibalism at Clash Gig read the headline in the NME in 1976. <laughs> 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 Um, at a gig called the official title of the gig was A Night of Pure Energy 1976 concert in London uh, a concert at which Patti Smith jumped on stage with The Clash uh, in the front row in photographs in the NME two fans two punk rockers are seen biting and fondling each other and one of them ends up covered in blood laughing as the blood goes down his neck it was in fact Shane McGowan uh, and another famous face on the punk scene at the time Mad Jane Crockford and the NME article claimed that she had just been so overwhelmed by their madness in the music that she'd bitten off Shane's earlobe but in fact she hadn't she'd just bottled him <laughs> ah well there you go well that's alright then and he found it hilarious <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that is, that is some art well done yeah you're welcome um, in lieu of me not remembering to do the Nexus I can read a story out that I've done at parties it was my party trick in 2019 <laughs> okay um, which is pertinent to the record we just listened to right. uh, so 68 in 2019 supported Alien Ant Farm and POD at the garage mm, I and it. I messaged Nico and I got a guest day to go and watch it so I watched 68 the crowd fucking hated them <laughs> and booed a lot and then I was like, will I stay and watch Alien Ant Farm in 2019? And I did. So I'm going to read you. <laughs> After I'd had about four beers, I started writing down what was happening because I actually can't really remember that. It's only what, because I've got this note on my phone. So okay. uh, now would be the time to do like a wee ominous bass note. In the, you want an ominous note? or do you Just want... like a wee sort of like bass thing. Like, boom, right, okay. Boom, I'll and then I'll start telling the story. So I'm going to set the scene. The crowd was a crowd and it was full of Punisher and Thug Life hats. A lot of smoke. Um, two big Alien Ant Farm logos on stage You know the one like mm-hmm. the, yeah. uh, They walked on to ACDC I cannot remember for the life of me what song it was But they played the full song They stood on stage for two odd minutes 
and just stood there while ACDC played in the background. And I, I'm a big ACDC fan, and I thought it was fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as they walked on, there was a wah solo from them somewhere, but it was not the guitarist. <laughs> uh, everyone started vaping. Like I can't, I cannot emphasize mm-hmm. how much vape was in the room. At one point, after two songs, he gave a shout out to MTV. Wow. I'm not. I'm not sure it's still going. I'm not sure. I don't think it was going in 2019. Now. I don't think they were there. Uh, after the next song, he gave a shout out to Tony Hawk too. I don't think he was there either. <laughs> no, the not, not the first one. The, first one <laughs> the next song, he shouted out the other bands, which is nice, and then themselves. Oh really? Shouted themselves out, and he was like, "Now nah, come on, cheer!" And he like got everyone to cheer <laughs> much louder for <laughs> Smooth. This is. I can tell I was drunk when I was writing this one. He, he then said, "My mama is in San Francisco." I miss my mama. I miss my mama. I miss my mama. Do you miss your mama? I miss her. I miss Chester Bennington. This was his favourite Alien Ant Farm song. And then he dedicated the song to his mum, us and Chester. And I, I swear he said cows. What? He went, he went like, he went like I, I dedicate this song to uh, my mum, your mum and Chester and cows <laughs> and then the song started and i i honestly had to like crouch down and try not throw up laughing i was the f- i because everyone was like people were welling up because obviously just about it just died a lot of cow owners and at the end of that song the piano that was not on stage played the uh was the piano from in the end like the mm. lincoln park song oh ding no no ding, the ding ding that one fucking song is that <laughs> <laughs> the in the end piano that's what I was doing for like a minute, and then he did a wassail over the top of it. <laughs> Near the end of the set, it was like a co-headline tour, so I watched Island Farm for an hour and a half because I was like, wow. "I've been here long enough. I'm going to see." Going to see through the end. <laughs> the, well, I wanted to see the hit, obviously. Uh, Leaving Neverland had just came out as well. Two Place Smith Criminal. <laughs> He was like, do you want a cover? And everyone, even me, I, I, at this point, I was in the crowd. I was down the front. I was like, yes, I do want the, sorry, I do want the, I do want the cover. They then did a Bad Brains cover. Oh, <laughs> sneaky. And then he wanted a circle pit and no one moved. Uh, and then they did Smooth Criminal and they played the last Codis for, I don't know, nearly 10 minutes. It felt, well, it felt like 10 minutes. <laughs> and then he did, it's that pop song, uh, Finally It's Happening to Me. It's like, uh, you'll know the chorus if you heard it. I, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the song. But he did like a, a like 90s pop song mm-hmm. over the course of Smooth Criminal. Oh, wow. And then they walked off and there was another wah solo, but there was no one on stage. <laughs> uh, so there you go. Sorry for the, I don't have a nexus, but there you go. No, that's, my, that's, that's a good substitute. Thank uh, so you. Folk told me I should have sent that to the skinny. It's about their level of writing. Still. Unedited. <laughs> Straight in. <laughs> um, Grant, thanks very much, man. Thanks um, for having us. It was us. a good Cheers, suggestion. Guys. It was a fun episode to do. Um, yeah. It was good. Yeah, I, I hope it, it doesn't get you, you in any more trouble because God knows your reputation can he take it. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. See you guys. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.